I've got my Bible open to Luke chapter 7. I trust that yours is open there as well. As we march verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, I so appreciate Stephen Love uh, uh, pinch hitting for me last week, and he just kept going through the Gospel of Luke here. Luke is writing a real letter to a real person, his friend named Theo, that he's asking a question about the identity of Jesus, and Luke is providing the answer. Paragraph by paragraph, narrative by by narrative, character after character, we're trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? The most important question. You can get a lot of questions wrong. You cannot afford to get that question wrong. It's going to determine the outcome of your life and your eternal destiny. So it's so important that we study the answer to that question. Now, as we open up uh, Luke chapter 7 here, Luke is going to introduce us to two characters that have two completely opposite answers to the question, who do you say that I am? Now, not only are we going to find these two characters in this story, these two characters are in this room. As a matter of fact, every person in every seat by the time we're finished here is going to be able to identify yourself as either a worshiper or a spectator. Now, if you've been attending Gospel City Church for any time at all, you realize our mission is to make disciples, fully devoted worshipers of Jesus Christ. We are not interested in making spectators. But I don't know about for you, the longer that you know Jesus, the longer that you worship Him, the better answer that you can give to the question, who do you say that I am? the more tempted you can be to drift into being a spectator. Your relationship with Jesus can become comfortable and casual. You can lose the sense of an awareness of actually what Jesus has done for you, and you can slide into a stoic, unemotional, unresponsive response to Jesus. And so it's the temptation for everybody here. You know the flow of the service. You know at some point somebody's going to say, open the Bible. You know if you stay long enough, somebody's going to eventually say you are loved. And you can just kind of put it in cruise control. And if you do that, you'll become a spectator rather than a worshiper. Understand, if you want to be a spectator, we are going to make you feel uncomfortable at Gospel City Church. Now listen, if you're just kind of stepping into this relationship with Jesus and you're trying to get these questions answered, maybe you're new to church and new to Jesus, new to Bible, please know you are welcome here. You have come to the right place. Keep coming. Keep observing. Keep leaning in. Keep moving. Some of you are coming from some really... Um, hurtful places where maybe you've been out of church for a while and maybe you got hurt at a church and you're not quite sure you can even trust what happens in a church and these people that hold Bibles and because you've been scarred by some people that held Bibles in the past. Listen, you are in the right place. We want you here. This is the place to grow and to heal and to, to learn. But please hear me. If you have come to Gospel City Church for years and you are just occupying space around here, 
if all you're interested in is being a spectator, I would love to introduce to you some other churches where you would feel more comfortable. There are churches all around us that do a much better job of the spectator thing. That's not what we're going for here. But if you're interested in becoming a worshiper, then I want to introduce to you what the characteristics of a true worshiper of Jesus are. So today we're going to see three characteristics of a true worshiper, and we're going to see three characteristics of a spectator, and by the time we're finished, everybody in this room is going to be able to identify themselves. Are you a worshiper, or are you simply a spectator? So let me introduce you to these two um, characters in the story. Luke chapter 7, verse, six, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the house of the Pharisee and reclined at table. Here's the first characteristic of a true worshiper. There is a deep humility, and yet that is contrasted by a spectator who only has a surface hospitality. We are introduced to a spectator in this story. He's a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the, the religious fatheads. They knew more Bible than anybody else did. They had more rules and regulations than anybody else did. They were kind of the spiritual police on the scene. And one of these guys invites Jesus into his space. He invites him into his home. He's interested in Jesus. Maybe he's become an admirer of Jesus, a fan of Jesus. Maybe he feels like, I need to get to know this guy. Maybe he wants to have his questions answered, so he goes to Jesus and, and, and invites him into his home. There's a certain level of hospitality. That's good, but it's got to go beyond hospitality. Maybe this Pharisee thought by having Jesus in his home, it would bring some level of respectability, or maybe it would bring him some level of um, um, interest or curiosity that could be satisfied. Um, he wanted Jesus in his proximity. He just didn't want Jesus with intimacy. And so we've got to be careful not to be simply somebody that welcomes Jesus with hospitality. We've got to go beyond that to a place of deep humility. Now we're going to find out later this guy's name was actually Simon. Don't get confused. Jesus had a disciple named Simon Peter. That's a different guy. Here we have a Pharisee. Same name, different guy. And he asked him into his home. Then here's the second character we're introduced to in the story in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... Now just stop right there. When you think of the term woman of the city who is a sinner, what do you think her sin was? Now, you can kind of read between the lines there. At the very least, we would be able to say, surely her sin was idolatry. Because we know that that is at the root of every other sin. Below every other sin, there's this root of idolatry where we elevate something else to the place of God in our lives. Whether it's a relationship or a career or money or children or even religion, idolatry is when you give the best of your emotion, the best of your attention, the best of your affection to something other than God. And so in that sense, we are all sinners, and so she certainly had committed the sin of idolatry. But we can kind of speculate a little bit. It's quite possible that she had committed sins of sexuality. It's quite possible she was known in the city. 
She was notorious in the city for sexual sin. She was maybe a prostitute, and maybe she had tried to find love in the arms of men, and yet we know that she probably was not only a sinner, she had probably been greatly sinned against and trafficked in that particular arena. And so she's coming with all kinds of scars, all kinds of shame, all kinds of entanglement in sin. Do you get a picture of who this woman is? Some of you in this room can identify with that woman because I just described your past. And I want you to notice, this woman doesn't let the sin and the shame and the scars keep her from Jesus. She presses through and boldly, notice what she does, she comes uninvited to the dinner party in Simon's house. Notice it says in verse 37, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, this, this alabaster flask, it was a container. Alabaster is a soft stone that could be molded into a container. And inside this container was something described as ointment. It was likely perfume. It, was a, it had a nice aroma. Why did she bring that so intentionally with her? Understand, this was her most treasured possession. The most costly thing she had she brought it with her. She had likely used this to make her sin smell better. And she brings this to Jesus. Notice what happens next in verse 38. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Awkward. I mean, that, would that be a little weird if somebody showed up at dinner tonight and started kissing your feet? And That's a little weird, right? It might help you to understand a little better about how dinner was served in this ancient culture. Now, if I invited you over for dinner, I'm going to kind of bring a chair around and, and I'm going to seat you at a 30-inch table and you're going to scoot up and we're all going to enjoy dinner that's served there on the table. That was not the way dinner was served in this culture. Did you notice the two times it said Jesus reclined at table? How many of your children get disciplined if they recline at your table? Right? And I'll slept snow over there, sleep, sit. What do you tell them? Sit up, sit up, sit up. You're not supposed to act like that. You're supposed to have good posture. Well, in this culture, what it means to recline at table was this. The table was low, maybe, maybe 12 inches off the ground. The meal was served down here. So to get to the meal, the way that you ate dinner in that culture is you simply reclined at table the way you did when you were a college student in your dorm and somebody had pizza. You, you, you just kind of all laid on the floor and you just, you just dove into it and you talked. And so Jesus was reclining at table and there's another guy here, there's another guy behind him here, and he's eating the way that you would eat in that culture, reclining at table. Well, now you can get a picture of what it means when it said that the woman was standing at his feet. So she walks in, uninvited, and she stands there, and she is overwhelmed with emotion at who she knows she is 
in the presence of who she knows Jesus is. And there was a storm of worship that began to brew in her heart that produced a flood of tears in her eyes that spilled over onto rain on Jesus' feet. And then she knelt. She got lower in Jesus' presence. And she came, and the Bible says that as her tears fell on his feet, she wanted to wash his feet. What, why? Well, remember, this is before the days of Nike high tops and paved asphalt streets. And so if you were walking around in the streets of Israel at that time, it was dirt streets. Remember, animals would walk through there as well and leave animal residue there. And, and you're walking on all of this. And the best you probably had on your feet was a pair of sandals. So everybody's feet was filthy. And she noticed that as her tears struck his feet, it began to cleanse the water. And so she decided to do an even thorough job. And you know what she did? She got even lower. And she took her hair, which must have been very long, and she began to use that to wash the feet of Jesus in a service to Jesus. But then she got even lower, and she began to kiss his feet as a sign of how much she adored and treasured Jesus, that she knew as the Christ, the only one that could wash away her sin. She would wash away the dirt with her tears. He would wash away her sins with his blood. And this was the overwhelming response of a deep humility of a sinner in the presence of holiness. It's the only appropriate response. That's the response of a worshiper who sees his sin. He gets lower. The only appropriate response is to get as low as you can, as fast as you can, when you are in the presence of holiness. And this is what she does. Now let's find out how the Pharisee responds. The spectator. Notice verse 39. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he's a spectator, sees it, he said to himself, now notice he didn't say this out loud, he just said it to himself, if this man were a prophet like me, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. not like me. And so this spectator is more concerned with the sin of the woman than he is with his own sin. That's what spectators do. They're focused on the sin of everybody else. And they make the mistake of thinking the sort of people in the world that are different than them. This Pharisee thinks there's only two sorts of people. Good and bad. That's what spectators do. They think people fall in these two different, there's two different sorts of people. There's good people and there's bad people. But humble worshipers know the truth is the only two sorts of people there are are dirty, rotten sinners and dirty, rotten, forgiven sinners. Those are the only two sorts. 
And this Pharisee couldn't find himself in either category. He put himself in the category of good and put her in the category of bad, unworthy, and unwelcomed at the party. Can I ask you? What sort of sinner are you? A forgiven sinner or an unforgiven sinner? Are you a humble worshiper with a deep sense of your own sin? Or are you a spectator that has overestimated your righteousness in the presence of holiness? A couple of weeks ago, our elder team took a day. We went down to Indianapolis and, and we gathered there with five or six other Great Commission collective churches for a day of elder training so that the elders could know how to treat their pastor nicely and, um, and, um, and keep their pastor accountable and humble and with character and all those different things. And so as we got there, it was just a great day. We enjoyed great fellowship there and, and uh, Great Commission Collective did a great job of hosting us. They were very hospitable. And when we got there, they had a gift bag for us and a journal, a pen and then they sat out like five different stacks of books and there was a little sign there that says choose two. So there were books on doctrine and there were books on leadership and I was kind of late to the table and so I got the leftovers and there was this big stack of books that was left over that the other elders didn't choose and one of them was this one. It just said humility. Apparently the elders thought they, they didn't need that one. Um, so there were all these leftovers, and so I got the leftover, I picked it up, and, and I took this with me last week when I went to Oklahoma to visit my mom, and the Lord used this like a scalpel in my heart to cut out arrogant, self-righteous, self-exaltation, religious pride in my heart. It's written by a guy named Andrew Murray, old dead guy. And as I began to read this, I want to share with you some of the things that the Lord taught me that I believe were evident in the heart of this sinner woman and I trust that become evident in you. First of all, what is humility? Humility can be described as the place of complete dependence on God. That's true humility. Andrew Murray says this, Humility, the place of entire dependence upon God, is from the very nature of things the first duty and the highest virtue of His creatures. And so pride, the loss of humility, is the root of every sin and evil. He goes on to say, Humility is perfect quietness of heart. How you doing with that? It is to expect nothing. It is to wonder at nothing that is done to me. To feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. Do you have humility? A complete dependence on God that comes from his internal presence rather than external circumstances being calm. He goes on, here's another thing I learned. Humility is the only appropriate response in the presence of Jesus. 
We just saw this woman's response, how everything she did brought her lower in the presence of his exalted place. Andrew Murray says, humility is nothing but the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. It is the longing of my heart every Sunday in all four services, in every seat, that there would be such a view of God as high and exalted and holy that we would forget about ourselves. That is humility. Someone has said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less because all the space in your head is filled with a view and a vision of who Jesus is. You know the answer to the question, who is this Jesus? Who do you say that I am? If you fill up that space with who God is, you'll forget about yourself. Humility is our greatest need. Do you long to be blessed by God? Do you long to get God's grace? You want God to answer your prayers? Then notice what Andrew Murray says. Just as water ever seeks the lowest place, so the moment God finds the creature abased and empty, His glory and power flow into exalt and bless. You want to be blessed? You want to be exalted by God? You have to get lower in His presence. That's what a worshiper does. Not a spectator, a worshiper. And then finally, humility is a choice that is often resisted. Andrew Murray says, you want to be humble? Here's what you have to do. Accept every humiliation. Look upon every fellow man who tries and vexes you as a means of grace to humble you. Use every opportunity to humble yourself before your fellow man as a help to abide humble before God. I don't know about you, when I face resistance and opposition, my first thought is not, thank you God for giving me another instrument to humble myself. And yet it is a gift. Every weakness, every trial, every sickness, every headache, every cough, every child, every parent, every unreasonable boss, every loss of job is an opportunity to respond in humility to get to the place where God can bless you. He says this is your one duty. Place yourself before God in your utter helplessness. Consent heartily to the fact of your impotence, completely powerless to change the situation. Sink down into your nothingness and in your spirit, uh, and in the spirit of meek and patient, trustful surrender to God. You ever pray for humility? Andrew Murray says this. Some men pray for humility, but in his secret heart, he prays more to be kept from the very things that will make him humble. You want to be humble? Embrace the hardship. Embrace the trial. Embrace every tool that God uses you to strip away the illusion that you have anything to offer God. Are you a spectator or are you a worshiper? Here's the second thing about a worshiper. A worshiper has an unashamed adoration. 
whereas a spectator only has an uninvolved consumerism. Look here at verse 40. And Jesus answering him said, I I love that, Jesus answered him even though he didn't say anything out loud. He was just thinking it, so Jesus read his mind and says, hey, I know what you're thinking. So he gives him an answer to the stupid stuff he's thinking. So he says, he answered him saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And he gives an illustration, tells a little word word picture here, verse 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. Now just stop right there. I want you to think about your money lender. Anybody owe anybody money in here? Anybody have a mortgage? Anybody have a car loan? Anybody have any student debt? How many of you are about, have already filed for bankruptcy or should at any moment? It's like, you know, we're, this is way too transparent in church, right? So does that bring any weight on you? I mean, it's just like, oh, I just feel like this weight, this debt that I have. And who's your money lender? Is it a bank? Is it a credit union? Is it your grandmother? Who is it? I don't know. But you, you feel like you've, you've got this thing that you owe somebody. So Jesus brings that and wants to teach us something about what it means to be a worshiper. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. One owed more than the other. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more. And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. You following the story? Did you follow the story this week? Did you hear about um, uh, the commencement speech and the commencement speaker this week at Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia? Did you hear about this guy? So very smart of the administration to invite this guy named Robert Smith to give the commencement address for the graduating class of 2019 at Morehouse College. How many of you remember the commencement speech at your graduating, at your graduation? Nobody, right? You know, we have no idea what that guy said, right? And so this guy was super smart. He was only up there for like six minutes. And he decided instead of a speech, this is what he did. He stood up here and said, look, um, my family, and Robert Smith is a bazillionaire. So he's, my family and I have set up a trust and our family is going to pay off all of the student loans of all 400 of the graduates of Morehouse College class of 2019. How many of you think they remembered that? (laughs) Yeah. Here's a little picture I found of of some of the graduates, okay? (laughs) Woo! That's the best graduation speech I've ever seen. I don't know who this guy is, but he looks like his debt has been canceled. I don't know how significant his debt was, but that guy looks like he had a lot of debt. Um, I mean, maybe $100,000 worth of debt. And this guy looks like the kind of guy that, you know, he just leveraged every loan he could get, you know, and, and probably not real interested in, like, paying it down. Probably not the guy that was driving Uber on the weekends at night and, and fixing sandwiches at Subway to keep it as low as possible. I'm thinking that guy had a lot of debt to be canceled. Now, I want you to notice the guy over your shoulder. <laughs> I, again, I do not know who this guy is. But to me, he looks like a guy that worked really hard to pay down the debt. I mean, he's got three jobs. He sold his PlayStation, you know, to the first guy. And 
you know, he took a year off of college to go work in the oil field to try to get the debt as low as possible. And here he is showing back up and he's thinking, hmm, what a waste, you know? (laughs) This is the story that Jesus is telling us. Here is the truth for every person in this room. Every person in this room has a debt of sin that we could never pay back to Jesus. And we are completely dependent upon someone, the one that we owe the debt to, canceling the debt. And Jesus is telling Simon the Pharisee, I am the one to whom you owe your life. And I have the ability to cancel the debt of anyone, the sin debt of anyone. And so he's teaching to her this, he's teaching him this story about how this woman, you know who the woman is in the story? It's the first guy. A huge amount of sin. As a matter of fact, that's what he says. Look here at verse 42. Uh, verse 43, uh, ver- sorry, verse 44 is the one I'm trying to get to. It says, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? You're a spectator, are you? Watch this. He wanted Simon to see the woman. Simon wanted to ignore the woman because it was awkward and it's embarrassing. Again, a, a couple of weeks ago, we, we went to the uh, National Day of Prayer event at Bethel College uh, where churches from all over the community got together for, to pray for our community and our nation on National Day of Prayer. And uh, they had various people come out and just give three to five minute prayer charges. And one of the first people that came out was a woman. I didn't know who she was. She was a beautiful African-American woman. And you know what she did? Instead of kind of giving us a prayer charge, she dramatized this story. She got down on her knees and there was a chair at the end of the, the stage and she, she got closer and closer and she took her hair down and she pretended to, to wash her feet. And as I'm watching this, I'm like, this is awkward. How am I, because I'm up next. Like, what do you say after that, you know? And, and she's leaving these stones across the table and I'm like, I don't think she really got what the assignment was all about. And then I got to this story this week and I thought, I'm the Pharisee. I was a spectator instead of understanding the worship. It's really awkward when you're a spectator and you are in the midst of passionate worshipers. People that have grown up in church. Some of you, I mean, you went to church nine months before you were born. You hadn't missed a Sunday. You crawled the aisle as a three-year-old and gave your heart and life to Jesus. All three of your sins at that point, you know? And you've grown up in church. You've read the Bible. You've taught Sunday school class. You've served in every position. And the, the truth of the matter is, you are much like Simon the Pharisee. Your sin debt, comparatively speaking, is pretty small compared to the person next to you that maybe just now is understanding that your life of sin has wrecked you and all of the adultery and all of the immorality and all of the lies and cheating and stealing and deception, your sin debt's here. And yet you are the one that is in a position to be the greatest worshiper of Jesus just like the sinner woman. Notice what Jesus says. 
He says, turning toward the woman, he, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wept, she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them from, wiped them with her hair. It would have been very customary for the host at a dinner party to have a basin of water there for guests as they came in and for that host to kneel down and wash the feet of all those coming in. Simon didn't do that, and Jesus reminded him of that. No water. And then he says this. He said, when I came in, you gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Again, over in the Middle East, instead of shaking hands or giving a hug, two men that would greet each other as a way of expressing admiration, you've seen that done. And Jesus pointed out, you didn't do that for me. No admiration, no affection, no kiss. And then Jesus says in verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Again, a sign of blessing as you come into somebody's house in that culture, you would have just put a little oil on the forehead as a way of saying, God's presence is here. We're going to fellowship together. And Jesus says, you didn't do that either. What is that a picture of? That is a picture of spectating religion. No water, no kiss, no oil. That water represents service. That's what spectators do when they come to church. They don't come to serve, they come to be served. They never pick up any other responsibility. They never, they never look for a way to make somebody else's experience better. They never look to make somebody else's load lighter. They're just so consumed with themselves, they come to get rather than to give. Are you a spectator? Do you serve on any team around here? Are you involved in missions and getting the gospel out of here? No water. And then he says, no kiss, no affection. There's no expression of emotion and affection for Jesus. You just stand there stoic through the worship time, you don't ever bow. You don't ever lift a hand. You Those are outward expressions. More importantly is what you do when you get out of here. Do you live a life of worship, following Jesus, obeying Jesus through your prayers and through your obedience? No water, no kiss, no oil. That oil was a sign of worship, the fragrant aroma that says, I, I am not here to make myself smell better in your presence. I am here to make much of you. And so this woman did not come empty-handed to the place of worship. She came and brought her most costly sacrifice and poured it out in service to Jesus. And yet spectators come to church empty-handed. They don't give anything. They just take they don't sacrifice anything of value. They might tip God in the offering. They have a little extra left over. Might feel good to throw in with the rest of us. But there's not what this woman did, an extravagant, sacrificial gift as the expression of her adoration to Jesus. Are you a worshiper or are you a spectator, a consumer of spiritual groceries around here? Here's the last characteristic. The worshiper has a transformed identity. 
whereas the spectator has an uncommitted apathy. Look here at verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Notice Jesus doesn't excuse her sin. He doesn't lower the bar. He doesn't erase all sin. He's like, you got a lot of sin. It was sin yesterday. It's going to be sin tomorrow. But it's going to be forgiven sin. So he changes the label. The spectators had put a label on her of sinner. Jesus put a new label on her. Forgiven sinner. And it goes on. She loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. You will not love much until you understand how much you are loved. You will not serve much until you have a continual awareness of how much Jesus serves you. You will not give much until you are brought to your knees with how much you have been given. He who has been forgiven much loves much. He who has been forgiven little loves little. Verse 48, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? That's the right question. That's the question we're trying to answer. Who do you say that I am? Who is this who forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Notice, she got a completely new identity. Her identity was once shame and guilt and sin, and now her identity was saved, forgiven, at peace, on mission with God. And yet, that Pharisee would never commit. He was still skeptical. He was unimpressed, unconvinced with who Jesus was, and he chose to remain a a spectator. Are you a worshiper? Or are you a spectator? If you are a spectator, I implore you to move to the place of humility. Get low in the presence of God. Embrace your identity as a dirty, rotten sinner and then come to Him to have your sin debt canceled in the presence of His holiness. I want to invite you to stand right now. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? I want to give you a moment just to contemplate Maybe just to speak a word to the Lord. Respond to what He has said. And don't be a spectator right now. This is not a time for anybody else. It's a time for you. Who do you most identify with in the story? You sit back and watch others worship? Or is there such an adoration of Jesus, a a deep humility, a transformed identity? you come for the reminder, the continual reminder of who you are in His presence. You come to to give. You come to serve. come to offer your life as a, a sacrifice of worship. If you've never done that, do that now. You can even say in your heart, Lord, I am that sinner woman. I'm a notorious sinner. I need my sin debt canceled. Others of you would say, Lord, I know that you've canceled my sin debt, and yet I've drifted from the place of worship. I've become comfortable and casual, unresponsive in your presence. Renew my heart. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for preserving this story for us and bringing it to our attention. Lord, we do see this woman. I pray that you would conform us into those extravagant worshipers that we read about in Scripture. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.